Welcome to the 157th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. And welcome to our, what is it, seventh theme month, Brian? Can you believe that? The years start coming and they don't stop coming. Is that what Smash Mouth said? Yeah. Smash Mouth, my favorite singer. R.I.P. He smashed his last mouth. <laughs> I don't like to put my brothers on blast too much, but I made a lot of jokes at the passing of uh, the Smash Mouth singer in our, our private Brothers Only Discord, and I got slightly chastised for being irreverent for during the the unfortunate early demise of a, a singer, which, that to be fair, it's, it's sad when someone dies young. As my brother said, he brought a lot of joy. So, you know, with the, the Shrek song and the I'm a Believer cover and all the other great contributions to Western civilization that Smash Mouth is responsible for. Anyways, we're, we're off topic here. So welcome to our theme month, and that is debut month, Brian. Debut month. <clears throat> I don't know if it has a catchy name yet, but this month we're going to be looking at the various debuts, auspicious or otherwise, of various film figures. I'm thinking directors, doesn't have to be directors, could be whatever. This week it's a director. So we are going to be discussing the first film of James Cameron. Big name. Pretty big name. His first film came out in 1981, and it is called Piranha 2 The Spawning, otherwise known as Piranha 2 Flying Killers in some releases, including the one that I had, and I think the international release. Right. The YouTube upload I was watching said Flying Killers at the start, and I thought, is this the right movie? And then it immediately started with a fully nude sex scene, and then I was thinking, is this the right movie? <laughs> and yes, it's the right movie. Yeah. So what I want us to do each episode during this theme month is ask ourselves a few questions related to this this debut effort and and the person for whom it is the debut. So here's the questions we'll ask before we we dive into this specific work. So what is the person for whom this is the debut? What is this person best known for? And what is our experience with their work? So James Cameron is best known for making three of the four highest grossing movies in the history of cinema the two avatars and Titanic that is, but he's got lots of smashes. Basically everything he releases is a smash with one exception. And that being Piranha two. And I would say he's one of the most film popular filmmakers on the planet. Every time he releases something, it's, it's a big deal. And so I'm wondering, Brian, out of the, I didn't look up exactly what it is, but it's in the realm of 
12-ish films that he's made. What what uh, James Cameron movies have you seen? Or it might be more apt, which ones haven't you seen? Right. So I've seen a pretty good number as far as director filmographies go. With James Cameron, his mode of operations is like, show up, make the highest grossing movie of all time, then go away for 10 years and come back and again release the highest grossing movie of all time. <laughs> He's kind of got a Willy Wonka thing going on. Right. And fiddles with expensive equipment and mostly underwater photography, but, you know, um, whatever's on his mind at the time. Right. The dude loves water, loves being in the ocean. But movies that I've seen from James Cameron, Titanic, obviously, Avatar 1 and 2, Terminator 2, oh, and True Lies, that one with... Arnold and Jamie Lee Curtis. That's it, I think. I've never seen Aliens. I've never seen Terminator 1. Oh, man. Well, I have seen Terminator and Aliens, which were his first two after this. For a long time, he declared Terminator to be his real debut, um, but he's kind of walked that back, and he now acknowledges Piranha 2 as part of his oeuvre. But... I just caught up with the Terminator for the first time a couple years ago, and it's really good. Yeah, and he wrote that one, too, so I don't begrudge him calling that his debut. Yeah. I honestly, I rewatched Terminator 2 right after it. I think Terminator 1 is better, even though Terminator 2 is, is probably more famous at this point. And yeah, of course, Titanic. I've never seen the Avatars, actually. So one of our questions to wrap this up will be, what are you going to look at next for this director? And the Avatars might be the answer. I'm also intrigued by his relatively smaller releases. I think he did The Abyss, which is another underwater-themed one. And then True Lies, I haven't seen either. So, But yeah, I think, I think it is past time for someone who is an aspiring semi-professional film critic to watch Avatar 1 and Avatar 2 to keep up with the, the public discourse. Right. It's so in the zeitgeist. And so now here's the next question. Considering this is the debut, what was their background going into this and how old were they at the time of their debut? And so James Cameron was born in 1954. So he would have been 27 at the time of this release if I did the math right. Right. It's 1981. Yeah, I guess 1982. I'm seeing elsewhere here. But anyways, so he was younger than 30. Pretty impressive to direct a major motion picture under the age of 30. And his background is he was kind of a, a tech producer type guy. Um, and he had actually worked with Roger Corman, who, who was an incubator of, of various talents. I think didn't Martin Scorsese work with Roger Corman? Yep. I wrote a whole paper for a class about did Scorsese crib ideas from Corman because I see so much of Bucket of Blood in Taxi Driver. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because we, talk, we talked about Bucket of Blood. And we'll get into more Roger Corman connections here in a minute. But yeah, he, he had worked with, with uh, Roger Corman. And this was kind of his first chance, his foot in the door here to, to make this film, Piranha 2. So it comes on the heels of Piranha 1, of course. So... Piranha is a Joe Dante film produced by Roger Corman, although apparently he was pretty hands off on the production of it. And 
it sometimes gets listed as a Jaws parody. I did watch it this week, um, just out of curiosity. Uh, in general, the sense I get from movies like this is you don't need to see the original. It's not continuity. There's maybe a little bit in the sense that like, oh, there's a scientist in the first one. And they mentioned that there's science in the second one. But like, you, you don't need the first one to know what's going on in Piranha 2. In fact, in some ways, it makes less sense. It's like, what? How? what is the connection here? But Piranha had an interesting collection of talent directed by Joe Dante. I don't know if we've talked about Joe Dante on the pod, but I'll, I'll probably bring something of his on the pod at some point. Written by John Sales, who was a, a pretty productive, independent sort of B-movie writer and director, uh, produced by Roger Corman, and had effects done by Phil Tippett, who's done a lot of great effects through the years and had his his debut film as a director, Mad God, come out a couple years ago, a a stop-motion film. And I watched it, and it's actually pretty solid. It it doesn't really transcend being like a B-movie, and I would not call it a parody. It's got, like, jokes in it and some flippant stuff about, like, disaster movies, monster movies in it, but it's not really a parody. It's it's kind of just a, a B-movie version of a Jaws-type movie. And it also has Kevin McCarthy in it, who played R.J. Fletcher in UHF, the villain. But in Piranha 1, he's like the scientist who made the mutant piranhas. Yeah, he's he's sort of a villain. Not exactly. He, he But that movie is paced like a wound spring or something. It's like, so basically somebody dies in an opening scene. It always happens in movies like that. There's an unexpected death at the beginning. And then the lead actress is out on the hunt for finding them. And so I'm like, okay, maybe by like the 45 minute mark or the hour mark, they're going to find what happened to him. And then the piranha, they'll discover the piranhas. But no, it's like the 10 minute mark when she discovers where it is. And then there's just twist after twist. They're not really like big twists. It's not like a, a that gonzo and bat shit. But it, it just it's a movie that moves really quickly and characters die really fast after we meet them. But they're still pretty memorable. And I did like uh, the the scientist character. I thought it was pretty good. So that's uh, I would give that one either a four or a five because it kind of hits the ceiling for what a, a B movie Jaws knockoff can be without quite transcending it. And that kind of paved the way for Piranha 2, which Roger Corman, I th- I don't know exactly what his involvement was, but he clearly kind of had had some say in it, although I didn't see him listed in the producers. So I, I don't know exactly how he was involved. So the description on Wikipedia says, Producers Jeff Schechtman and Chaco Van Leeuwen immediately began work on a sequel film. Roger Corman who had produced and released the first film, did not share either person's interest, instead focusing on his own underwater horror film, Humanoids from the Deep. Oh, man. Okay, so I guess he he was hands-off again. Not involved at all. But totally new talent, uh, new writers, of course, a new director. Pretty interesting to go from Joe Dante to James Cameron. Uh, James Cameron, I guess he hopped on the sequels a few times. So he did... Piranha 2 is his first movie. And then he did Aliens, which is Alien 2. Do you, have you heard the famous story about how he pitched Alien 2? Tell me. This is probably like either exaggerated or entirely fabricated. But the story is he, he went to the boardroom for, I forget what studio released, um, 
alien, but he went and he had a, a whiteboard and he wrote alien and then he looked at them and then dramatically put the S after alien. So it was aliens. And it was like, uh, and then dollar sign. I don't know if he actually do dollar signs next to it, but I like to imagine him drawing money bags next to it. You've done it again. And reading a little bit about the development of this film, it said like originally there was one director signed and it kind of fell through. And James Cameron, as you mentioned, was like a special effects specialist who was there and ended up getting promoted by the producer on this film. His name is Ovidio Asinitis, <laughs> which is quite the name for a filmmaker. A Hall of Fame name. Yeah, there, there's a lot of... I read a little bit about it, and there's like 2,000 words about the production of this. And part of the problem is nobody quite agrees with what the other person said. It's like, oh, James Cameron, he was only there for two weeks. He didn't actually direct that much. Oh, but maybe he did direct the whole thing. Oh, but he just had a script and he didn't like it. Oh, but did he actually write part of the script? And people are just going back and forth on it. And it just sounds like it was a nightmare. And we'll see whether we think the nightmare resulted in a fun clusterfuck of a movie or just a, a slog of a nightmare of a movie. Yeah, I just wanted a chance to say Ovidio Asinitis. <laughs> it sounds like a, a highfalutin insult you'd shout at someone. <laughs> like like it's from Latin or something like that. <laughs> That's the kind of insult that gets hurled at our gifted and talented high school. <laughs> and I, I just want to confess right now, Brian, that I actually have never seen Jaws. So although that's an important point of comparison. I was going to ask, because I think that's come up before. It's it's one of my more notable holes in film history. we got to fill your notable holes, Dan. <laughs> but these films, both of the Piranhas, the opening, it feels like Jaws. But I guess there's no other way to start a fish horror movie. It's like you got to get the people into the water. So inevitably you start out with like young beautiful people having sexy times and they decide to swim at night and then something <laughs> eats them did you watch piranha one brian i watched the first half of piranha one i didn't finish it yet gotcha so shall we dive into piranha 2 brian yes and i'll say that actually the problem of needing to put people in the water was ingeniously solved in this film <laughs> as we will see so Almost ironically, because, well, let's get to this right now. It opens with, like you said, underwater canoodling. And it's like gratuitous nudity, honestly. A full body nudity. I'm going to declare now, I think this might be the horniest movie we've ever watched. It's no mistake that the subtitle is The Spawning. <laughs> Everybody is horny. Yeah. Yeah, I would have to think a little bit about that. Beach Party was pretty horny, but that was like PG rated horny. You might be on to something. It might be this. And there's definitely probably the most nudity out of any movie that we've seen, that we've discussed, unless you count the weird stuff that Gargus brought on. What was that called? Final Flesh or whatever? Right. Yeah, that's the one that was like maybe tripping me up. It's like, I don't know, though. There was that was so surreal and like high concept that I wouldn't call it horny. Not in the way that an 80s B movie is horny, you know? Yeah. 
but I will say Piranha one, which I found pretty solidly entertaining, really did not have much in the way of compelling water photography. James Cameron showing his underwater photography chops right off the bat in Piranha two. Like, yeah, it's kind of dumb and weird that you're opening with underwater sex. Kind of impressive how it's shot too. Like you, you're really telling what's happening and getting a sense of the underwater space and it's clear and pretty cool. Right. Because they go down into a sunken shipwreck, like the opening of Titanic, except they're fucking. (laughs) I mean, that does happen in Titanic, but I guess not while they're underwater at that point. Not right away. Not in the little uh, ocean gate thing. Yeah, that's true. What's the name of that actor? Which one? The frame story guy? Is it, it's either Paxton or Pullman, and I get him confused. It's Paxton. Bill Paxton. There was a movie, I'm sure I've said it on the podcast, there's a movie starring Bill Pullman and Bill Paxton. <laughs> they did a team up. Doing the Spider-Man point meme. Oh, yeah. I think we already said it, but as they're canoodling, piranhas come out and kill them. Blood fills the water. End of the opening. Cut to a bedroom. I thought it was a hotel. I don't know if it's like a hotel or apartment or something. And it's this woman lying naked in bed. This scene is so upsetting. This scene stained the movie for me. (laughs) Yeah. And so, okay, so she's lying in bed naked. She's obfuscating the bits and her lover comes in. Well, he comes in and he's holding a live fish and he starts like taunting her with it and like making floppy dick jokes sort of kind of and like oh this is awkward way for lovers to interact cut to breakfast scene well so the fish like slips out of his hands and is like flopping around on her body and then he starts like you know half trying to grab it and the effect is he's like massaging this live fish over the woman's body in bed (laughs) and then what happens dan cut to breakfast and he says Hi, mom. What? It's not an oh air lover. Oh my god! It's it's her son. What's going on? This is her son. Are you kidding me? I had to like rewind the tape. I was like, "This is the same person. Is this real?" <laughs> this is the coffee commercial times ten. This is Denny in the room times twenty. I, I was unprepared, and I never it never left my mind. Like the son kind of wanders off and has his own plot line in this film. But this pairing was always on my mind. It's like, oh, no. And that's what's so weird about it is you would think it's like, all right, just laying some outrageous Freudian groundwork for the rest of the film. But then he they're completely separated until the very end of the movie. But yeah, man, messed up. I'm out on this. (laughs) Mistake, James Cameron. (laughs) And his name is Chris. I don't know why that makes it worse. The name Chris is just... (laughs) Sorry to our Chris's out there. Uh, uh, yeah, the way this kid dresses, uh, like I couldn't really place it a, in an era. He looks like a Brady Bunch brother. He's got like a tight shirt and like moppy hair, but he's just got a weird energy, an aura. Yeah, so in addition to all the weird stuff with the mom, you're right. It's like a it's like a dorky kid outfit sort of because it's like a brightly colored polo. And then he's got these short shorts. They got to be like five inch shorts, like barely over the crotch that. And he wears that outfit the whole damn movie. Like 
this movie takes place across at least three days or four days, but that's the only thing that we see him wearing. Right. He looks like uh, Michael Sarah in the Barbie movie or something. Yeah, something like that. Anyways, we learn about uh, this woman. She's going to be kind of the main character for the movie, and she's a, a diving instructor. Her name is Anne Kimbrough, and the place she works at is this resort called Club Elysium, and it's in the Caribbean, and they're preparing for this upcoming festival called The Spawning. Kind of weird, but okay. So she's a she's a diving instructor, so... She's taking out guests she's never met before every day, teaching them how to scuba and all that. And here are some of the other characters that she's going to be dealing with here. So the um, main one is her ex-husband. She keeps saying my husband. So I don't know if they're like actually exes, but he's effectively the ex-husband. And he's pl- played by the prolific character actor Lance Henriksen, who I recognized from Terminator. But he was also in Aliens, and uh, I looked on Letterboxd. It says he's been in 189 feature films. So, wow. Uh, yeah, he's been he's been active. There's this father-son duo of illegal dynamite fishers. Love the opening scene when we meet them, lighting dynamite and throwing it into the water. I don't know if dynamite fishing is real, and if it is, if it looks like this, but it was fun to watch him lighting dynamite sticks, throwing them 20 feet out in the water and having it explode in a big splash. Does that actually like, is that effective? It must be because it's treated like it's this secret way to be a, a, a fisher. Right. I looked it up. There is a Wikipedia article on blast fishing. So it's a technique that can be used. Okay. Obviously, it's indiscriminate as with other explosives. But, uh, you know, there's also the, the kind where you drop like an electric line in the water. So there's different hacks you can use. Fish hacks, yeah. Is it a, a fish hack to canoodle underwater? <laughs> Is it a fish hack to wipe a, a living fish on your naked mom? <laughs> the greatest of fish hacks, Dan. couple other people. There's a mysterious and handsome tourist, very generic 80s looking guy named Tyler. And he's constantly showing up and hitting on Anne. Any other favorites from the ensemble here, Brian? So there's this one pair on, because the whole thing takes place at this resort where Anne works. And there's this pair of guests that are like dorky. And yet they're pining for each other. I think they might be stereotypically Jewish. It's not so overt that I could categorically declare that. But... It's like this woman who is hell-bent on marrying a doctor, and then she finds this dorky doctor and is trying to hook up with him, and they keep popping up throughout the movie. Yeah, I like these dweebs. They were, they were my other pick for, for fun characters to watch. And, like, she fakes her death at the beginning, or, like, a, not her death, but, like, she's drowning, and the dentist has got, like, a, the sunglasses where you can, like, flip them up, and they turn into regular glasses, and he runs out there to save her. Yeah. So anyways, on on her daily diving lesson, uh, one of the guests is killed. Again, the piranha strike because they're swimming around this shipwreck where the previous couple had been. So after this diver is killed, the authorities, including her husband, are like, it's kind of us weird. There's a lot in this movie that's weird, but they're like, 
refusing to give her any details about the death. And she's like really worried that it's going to be a threat to other divers or something. And so she wants to know what's going on with this guy who died because she didn't see the piranha. She just saw the aftermath of it, the body and like brought the corpse ashore, I guess. So she she schemes that she's going to have to go to the morgue. Right. So one quick thing about this is it's a beat again from Jaws where her boss Anne goes to the the guy who runs the hotel and says hey I went down with a group of five and came back with a group of four because one guy got eaten by some kind of killer fish I think we got to put the kibosh on the dive toys and the mayor says this is our big tourist season we can't stop the dives and if you stop the dives you're fired so very much what happens to Sheriff Brody in Jaws. You said mayor there. I think it's the mayor in Jaws, but here it's like the resort owner. Yeah, the guy who runs the hotel. Right, yeah. So yeah, Anne is nonetheless investigating it. And this one tourist who is one of the dive guys, this Tyler fella, he just keeps showing up wherever she is and like getting in her business. If I were her, I'd be like, go away, dude. You're Stop being annoying. But she like basically lets him hit on her and they end up hooking up at one point. Less chemistry than she has with the sun. <laughs> Anyways, they, they decide to break into the morgue to investigate the corpse. And so they break in, take some pictures. We get some some gore effects. I don't know if Cameron was responsible for the gore effects. I actually thought they were better in this than in the first one. Although I've seen the first one get a lot of acclaim for the the gore effects. Really? I didn't think they were great. The bodies looked really fake. The like the holes in the bodies looked pretty gross. And if you have trifophobia, which the Internet likes to argue whether it's a real phobia, I think there's just something instinctive that makes us avoid things that look rotten. Mm. Mm-hmm. But things perforated with holes set a lot of people off online. And the way these piranhas kill you is instead of like biting things off, they kind of punch through you like Swiss cheese. That is true. And that's not very piranha like. Like the thing about piranhas is they devour all of the meat. They don't like go and nibble a little hole. Oh, and then go and nibble another little hole. Like piranha one, when someone dies, they're like brought down to the skeleton. And that kind of makes sense. Like that's kind of what I classically think of as the piranha is they'll devour whatever meat is in their vicinity, you know? Yeah, that's what I would think too. That's true. So they're they're caught investigating the corpse. It's this woman who is like, I guess, a janitor or something like that at the, the morgue. So, okay, Anne and Tyler leave the morgue. Now we're following the woman who works at the morgue, tidying up the body. And okay, well, I clean up where these these weird people were. She looks at the corpse and then all of a sudden a piranha flies, literally flies out of the corpse, gets her in the neck like it's a vampire or something like that and kills her. Okay, here we go. A lot of questions, a lot of observations. One, the piranha was just chilling in the body, I guess. It's later explained they don't like daylight and now it's night, I guess. So maybe it was hiding somewhere in there. They didn't detect it before then. Kind of weird because it's not a small piranha. Um, Two, more to the point, these fish can fly. 
It's not a it's a fish movie, but the, the they're flying, Brian. They figured it out the way to make them a bigger threat, you they, know. They cracked the code. It, even if it's not safe to go back in the water, you're not safe on land either. And they talk about that the reason this fish can do so many different things, as we're going to find out soon, is that it's the result of experiments fusing, grafting different species DNA. So obviously you got some flying fish in there. But what I really liked in this movie is the big event that the resort and the community is getting ready for is called a grunion run. And I had to look this up. Okay, what's a grunion run? And a grunion run, they're popular in California. It's this species of fish that on the night of a full moon, they will wash up on the shore and like burrow into the sand and have this mass spawning event. But they do it on the land. And so people will run into the surf and scoop up grunions with their hands and then eat them. So this is a real thing that we're we're looking forward to is the spawning. But grunions, so they have this heightened ability to live on the land, and that's part of the fish makeup that's in these killer fish. So that's why they can linger for a while. And so now we have body count starting to rise. And this is about when it, it really hit me that what this movie really reminded me of, Brian, is... A bad 80s slasher. I mean, I guess there is some crossover between a cheap 80s monster movie and a cheap 80s slasher. But so much about this made me think of like a bad sequel to Friday the 13th. So you got this big ensemble of broad character types. You have sort of a final girl and Anne, the one who's going to be who's going to outsmart the fish, the monster. A lot of gratuitous nudity and violence and blood. Lots of horny characters just kind of waiting around, getting ready to hook up with each other. Although I guess in this case, they're not teens like they usually are in slashers, but they're adults. Oh, yeah, it's a variety because you've got like... So there's the dorky pair. There's like an older woman who's trying to reclaim her vigor and she's chasing around after this younger guy. There is like the the separated mom being followed around by the tourist. I've does somebody hit on the separated dad? I feel like it happened, but it kind of all mixed together. And then the teenage son goes off on a boat with this like British like Jim Backus guy, uh, and he, and he has a hot daughter that the son is chasing around. Even though we know where his true loyalties lie, <laughs> floppy fish with his mom. Yeah. So, yeah, a lot of, like, amorous anticipation going on. Oh, and there's, like, a E-plot or F-plot of this pair of women who spend most of their scenes topless trying to, like, arrange a party and tricking this restaurant worker into giving them, like, the food and the booze for the party or something like that. That's kind of in there. So, yeah, just a big ensemble that are there primarily to like for us to to know them enough so that we at least recognize them when they get killed by piranhas. Like that's the slasher template. And the thing that really reminded me of a slasher even more than like the quippy dialogue that's really inane and the the broad character types is that they're killed kind of one by one in sort of surprising ways. 
which is not how you think of a monster movie being. You think of them dying in masses, but here they kind of die one by one. And the rest of the ensemble is kind of oblivious to it until there's like one kind of final major set piece where a lot of people die. In that case, it, it starts to feel more like a Jaws type movie. But I was definitely thinking of, of slashers as I was watching this. And also they sometimes die like in what appears to be some sort of like metaphysical punishment. So anyways, the next day, Anne is tr still trying to get these these diving lessons canceled, like you talked about. And she keeps investigating. And eventually Tyler, the guy who's been hitting on her, the weird tourist, admits that he's one of the scientists who worked on the Piranha Project. And that's how we get the important info about the the piranhas being crossbred from all sorts of different types of animals and stuff. A weird sidebar on Wikipedia in the plot summary. It says Tyler discloses that he dropped a cylinder full of piranhas into the sea and cylinder is a link to the Wikipedia article on cylinder. <laughs> in case you don't know what a cylinder is, Brian, sometimes you got to know. Yeah, it's also so it's implied that he's been hitting on her to like try and distract her to cover this up, which doesn't make sense like until after the investigation has started. But he's been hitting on her since before there was even the murder. So I don't quite know if they were going for something there, but kind of confusing. So the piranhas are, are continuing their rampage and. Like I said, it turns out they're scared of sunlight. So during the day, they, they hide in their nest and their nest is in that shipwreck. And then at night they come out and they murder. And um, some of the people they kill, so they get, honestly, most of them, they get the, the blast fishers, first the son and then the dad. They get some of the partiers. And it never stops being ridiculous and kind of hilarious when the fish just come flying out of the water and getting the necks, latching onto the faces or necks of the guests. What it's like is the killer rabbit scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The way these things fly towards you and latch onto your neck. Oh man, that's spot on. Right, the way the rabbit's just kind of flying around. That's exactly it. Blood spurting out, like almost nonsensically. <laughs> So yeah, then we get the big set piece. It's the the fish fry itself or the, what did you call it? What's it? The grunion run. The grunion run. So by this point in the movie, I was kind of bored and distracted because there's a lot of meandering. Occasionally you get a fish kill, but like I didn't really have any investment in the son, for instance. And so he and the daughter of the like Gilligan's Island millionaire guy are off on a, like a dinghy. And they end up on an island, and that whole plot, like, doesn't go anywhere. Because they they have only very limited involvement with the piranhas. So I was, like, tuned out a little bit until we finally got to this Grunion run. And I loved the Grunion run. That's what me and my bros call it when we're hanging out, the Grunion run. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, so they have, they have this event, and this is where you get the big kind of mass murder. Because it's shot pretty cool, I gotta say. Like... The, the water like starts vibrating almost and then they just start shooting out like bullets from the water and there's like blood smearing everywhere and 
it's built up to because we've been waiting the whole movie for this to happen. This is the whole community is walking down to the beach and they have like tiki torches and they start chanting, we want fish. <laughs> we want fish. And we intercut between this mob going down towards the surf and all the fish coming up towards the surf. And then the two collide and just all the fish yeah zipping up out of the water and attacking the people and it descending into chaos this elevated it like a full point in my rating <laughs> big fan of any event where you can chant we want fish <laughs> and so now that we we, we have that black that mass bloodbath but you're right so the the sun character they're drifting out at sea and they're like lost and the girlfriend wakes up and she's like oh we're, we're lost at sea that's so romantic and i'm thinking no that means you're gonna die like you're gonna get you you don't have food or water you know but ann and tyler they kind of figure out what's going on with the piranhas and their their plan is they're gonna go blow up the shipwreck nest meanwhile the the ex-husband the cop is gonna go out and rescue the son and the son's girlfriend and so it all kind of comes together because, of course, now the son and the girlfriend are floating basically right next to the shipwreck. And we get kind of a, a weirdly intense spec. The dad is jumping out of the helicopter, just kind of casually jumping out of the helicopter. It hits the water and explodes. I was not expecting a helicopter crash at this point in the movie. And he goes and rescues rescues them and... So, like, the concept here is if you blow it up during the day, all of the piranhas have gone back to the nest. So if all the piranhas go back to the nest and you blow that up, then you've eliminated the threat. There's no more piranhas because they, they've all been blown up. And that's what Ann and Tyler are working on. Tyler, the scientist, sketchy. He, like, very quickly, as soon as we learn that he's a bad guy, he almost immediately has, like, a moral awakening. But we know he's still disposable. In, in this plot, he gets like caught in the shipwreck and eaten by the piranhas. Then they set it off. The explosion works. Their, their plan succeeds and the family is reunited. And that, that's how the movie ends. And one weird moment here at the end that had me scratching my head that we have the shipwreck explosion and then it's unclear whether Anne survived the explosion. And then her head like pops out of the water and she's right near the dad and the son and the girlfriend who who are floating nearby and she shouts Kimbro to her her ex-husband so that's their last name kind of a weird thing to shout also we haven't heard their last name since like the one of the first scenes of the movie so i was like why is she shouting Kimbro what does that mean <laughs> Kimbro <laughs> i was kind of baffled but yeah that's uh piranha 2 the spawning a strange one, Brian. I don't think you and I will disagree on that. Let's do a couple of follow-up questions in the spirit of debut month. Sounds good. So how much and in what ways would you say that Piranha 2 foreshadows and represents James Cameron's future work? Well, right away you have the underwater photography, the love of being in shipwrecks, he can only pull himself away from being in the sea for like one movie at a time tops. <laughs> and now that he's made, you know, $3 billion or whatever, he never has to be too far from the sea in his movies. 
so i mean it is it's well done the underwater stuff so for me one thing is a lot of emphasis on the technology and the equipment like there is this one timer that they keep showing and you can tell cameron is fascinated with the way with this electronic timer works a lot of shots of like the nautical equipment and the sailing stuff more than i would have guessed i guess we had a, a female protagonist that's fairly common in the Cameron films. Oh, that's true. Right. And I think just the the nature of big water-based spectacle feels James Cameron-y. Next question. What is the legacy and the reputation of James Cameron's debut? And the answer is it was a total flop and he disowned it for much of his career. Although, like I said, he now acknowledges it. I think it has a 5% on Rotten Tomatoes which this was before the the great Rotten Tomatoes inflation. Nowadays, you basically have to be some sort of anomaly to get below 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, because it's artificially buoyed now. It's like taking away the dislike button on YouTube. Well, I think Rotten Tomatoes gets a bit too much hate. They did maybe open their, their tent a little bit too much. Like, There's a lot of people who just have YouTube channels who are just kind of generic fanboy types who give... Mostly positive reviews to just about anything. There was a controversy that a couple of critics had basically either implicitly or explicitly traded, uh, basically getting access to to free movies and interviews and stuff for positive reviews. I think maybe in some cases even paid, which would be worse. I, I still think it provides value because it kind of captures what the buzz is among the people who are trying to rate movies and you can still do the top critics filter which that that honestly should be the number that pops up is like the the top critics because those are the people who work for newspapers and more reputable sites and stuff but anyways piranha also got remade subsequent to this i think there was one in the like late 90s and then one in 2010 called piranha 3d which that got followed by a sequel called piranha 3 double d yeah, bra size joke. Yeah. Have you seen any of those? I have not. What about you? I have seen Piranha 3D, uh, which is very explicitly campy and parodying this type of movie. I think I gave it a four at the time. This is shortly after I started giving is a good ratings to all the movies I watched. I would definitely revisit it because it's pretty funny. It's got Adam Scott in it. And uh, I don't think I've seen Piranha 3 Double D, but... The TV remake comes from that era when uh, Roger Corman was remaking a bunch of his earlier movies. Like we talked about it with Bucket of Blood. There was a remake and Piranha TV remake. It was like for Lifetime or one of the cable channels back in the early 90s or mid 90s. And that one could also be a pick for debut month because that one had Mila Kunis's debut, the actress Mila Kunis. Oh, wow. But Wikipedia says Piranha 2 has become kind of a cult hit. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't heard. I've never encountered the cult of Piranha 2, I have to say. Right. I feel like if it has, it's in connection with its association with James Cameron. Yeah, I agree. Like people learned about it and thought to track it down just the way we have. And it's cause, just because it's kind of funny that this was James Cameron's first movie. Next question. What's our favorite work by James Cameron? titanic for me titanic for me too 
I haven't seen the avatars, but it's probably going to still be Titanic afterwards. Uh, who knows for sure? But yeah. Yeah. I really need to see the first Terminator and I should probably see the aliens movies. Terminator is probably my number two. I saw aliens back in college. I really need to revisit both alien and aliens. I remember liking aliens a lot though. So the only one of those I've seen was Prometheus because my friends went. So I definitely need to see the like early real ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's another alien movie coming out this year. Alien Romulus or something like that. Might be an excuse for me to go see all the alien movies. And now what, if anything, are we going to be checking out next? And I think I said the avatars is, is what it is for me. Is there any, and for you, you said it's Terminator one. Yeah. I think Terminator one, the Terminator. Yeah. Drop the, the, <laughs> And so there we go. Debut month, Brian. First James Cameron movie. That's right, but we've skipped an important step, Dan. Yeah, so I guess we can go to Is It Good? Is It Good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So I will ask you, Brian, is Piranha 2 good? This one's a little tough. I'm worried I might be a little too harsh. I'm going to give it two out of eight. And the biggest positive for me is that we want fish scene, <laughs> which really is structured and, and cut together pretty well. I, I love the buildup because you know what's going to happen. And yet you, you celebrate, you revel when it comes to pass. And like there's cool stuff with the photography, but there's a lot of meandering in this movie. A lot of characters, maybe more than there need to be, although it just attests to the fact that the title is accurate. There is a lot of spawning about to take place. What do you think, Dan? I'm going to give it a two not good as well. We probably made it sound more fun than it actually is, just because there's some goofy stuff in it. And the death scenes themselves are, are pretty fun. They end up being a little bit repetitive. But they're fun, but it's just connected with the most generic and bad 80s stuff. Characters you don't care about, inane dialogue, it just kind of goes on and on. It's it's barely an hour and a half, but it feels long and boring somehow. I didn't care about the heroes at all. Uh, it's almost into a three just because there's a lot of funny stuff and the just weirdness if it had been even weirder i think i i would have given it a, a slightly higher rating a flying fish movie is kind of inherently weird and james cameron has famously said in subsequent interviews in defense of the movie hey it's got to be the best flying piranha movie ever made as a sort of uh self-deprecating joke well, i think we gotta agree <laughs> it's in the running for sure Definitely had more fun with Piranha and then with Piranha 3D, which are both in the four to five range for different reasons. But yeah, I was going to say I would not be surprised if it's James Cameron's worst movie. I'll go one step further and say I will be surprised if it ends up anything other than James Cameron's worst, worst movie. That would say that something in his filmography is significantly worse than Reputation and or he has some sort of catastrophe yet to come out. We'll have to see. He's got three more Avatar movies coming. He's going to be doing it probably for the rest of his life. He's he's like sentenced himself to a life of Avatar. 
if he goes the Robert Zemeckis route and does like Pinocchio from last year, which I gave a one out of eight, then maybe not. But yeah. So that's our first outing of this theme month, Brian. And what will you be picking as our next entry in debut month? My first pick is going to also be a director's debut, two directors. This is the first feature from, they're called The Daniels. They recently did Everything Everywhere All at Once that swept at the Oscars just about. But the one I want to talk about from 2016 is Swiss Army Man with Daniel Radcliffe and is it Paul Dano? Yeah. Yeah. I have seen it once before. I want to talk about it. I had it on my short list for sometime this year to talk about, and then I checked, and sure enough, it's a directorial debut, so it lines up. Speaking of drop the the, I think they're just Daniels. There's no the in front of Daniels. Well, we'll read up on it, and we'll see. You had clued me in that this was one that we might talk about, and sometimes I watch movies that we discuss with my wife, and I said, you, you liked everything everywhere all at once. Do you want to watch this one with me? And I tried to explain the premise to her. I haven't seen it, so I don't quite know what it is. But I know that there is a sentient corpse involved in some way. And she said, uh, I don't think so. And I was like, well, let me show you the trailer. And I showed it to her. And she's like, uh, I still don't think so. I'm not sure. But we might watch like a little bit of it. And then she can bail if she doesn't like it. So we'll see. OK, so here's what I'll say at this point is the trailer doesn't tell you what this movie's going to be. <laughs> okay. Like, so I had seen the trailer and again, we'll revisit, but my thought was, what the heck was that? I need to see this movie just because you've got Daniel Radcliffe's farting corpse puttering around in the sea, like a rowboat or a, I guess a motorboat. And I thought that would be the whole movie, but there's more to it than that. All right. Well, I guess we will see. And listeners, thank you for joining us on the debut of Debut Month. And Brian, I'm looking forward to continuing this theme month next week and the weeks to come. Me too, Dan. Have a good week, everyone. Good concept for a theme month. And uh, listeners, join us again. <laughs> <laughs>